Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Because of the high level of gun violence, a number of doctors across the country are complaining that they're encountering more and more gunshot wounds and deaths. And the National Rifle Association suspects the ACP is encouraging gun control. The NRA is telling doctors to, quote, stay in their own lane and not involve themselves in the gun debate. Should doctors stick to medicine and refrain from involvement in social issues? We have with us in studio Dr. Sonny Sager. He is the owner of Downtown Urgent Care. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Why do you decide to insert yourself into this uh, debate? Well, when you talk about um, doctors, the NRA saying that doctors should stick to practicing medicine, I think they are practicing medicine. And when doctors say, this is our lane, this is my lane, they're basically raising awareness that gun violence is indeed a public health crisis. Um, if a virus killed 20 kids in five minutes or if a bacterial strain killed 20, uh, 60 people in 15 minutes, if you've got um, some pathogen uh, randomly attacking schools, churches, nightclubs almost every day of the year, then people would wonder whether doctors had fallen asleep at the wheel. This is very much our lane. So it's a public health issue, not a gun control issue? Well, it depends how you define gun control. To me, it just means um, gun being responsible if you have a gun. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, most gun owners that I'm familiar with, and I do know quite a few, uh, I think it's probably reflecting 99% of gun owners, they do want sensible precautions so that people don't have accidents. It's not an anti-Second Amendment movement then? No. I, I um, you know, My personal view is that we shouldn't have any guns in the country. Um, but I also respect the position of, uh, you know, I came to America 21 years ago. Um, I came from a country which doesn't really have a big gun culture. And so I do respect and understand that a lot of people do want to keep their guns. And I don't, a lot of people will, uh, you know, protect the Second Amendment uh, over their dead body. Will anyone repeal it? Mm. And I totally understand that. But I think it is reconcilable to actually have the Second Amendment still there and actually keep kids safe and keep people safe. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, experience in emergency rooms and, and trauma cases that uh, you might have experienced. So I, uh, I'm on staff. Oh, I was on staff. I haven't done the ER for almost a year. Um, I was on staff at most hospitals in town. I haven't really done that much major trauma. I have seen gunshot wounds, uh, but they weren't coming in every single day like you would see on TV. Um, Unfortunately, most of them end up in the morgue. Um, there's a large number of uh, gun deaths that are suicides. And um, I think sometimes there's bystanders, sometimes there's accidents. There's a, a lot of people who um, are affected. The question is, who's actually removing the bullets from the spines mm -hmm. and from the hearts? Who's repairing the bowel and the bones from gunshot wounds? Who's having to deal with the psychological effects of not just uh, the maimed victim or the family member of the deceased? It's all doctors. It's surgeons, psychiatrists, internists, emergency physicians, OBGYNs, pediatricians, everyone. And so to say that doctors don't, you know, should stay in the lane is kind of a, a very insensitive thing to say. Mm. We, uh, there was a program uh, on NPR in the, within the last couple of days in which uh, it was suggested that doctors maybe should have more conversations and are, in fact, having more conversations with patients about all of this. Where are you on that? I think um, <clears throat> there's proactive questions and there's proactive uh, actions. So 
we routinely, as physicians, we routinely ask parents, um, or we routinely ask adults, you know, how much do you smoke? Do you smoke? How much do you smoke? How long have you been a smoker? Mm -hmm. um, in the same way, I don't think there's any wrong, anything wrong with asking how many guns or do you have a gun? How many guns do you have? How long have you owned these guns? And I think, you know, do you ask uh, whether um, we should ask, do you keep them locked up? Mm -hmm. Do you keep them loaded or unloaded? Um, and are there kids in the house? Uh, these kind of questions, I know that there is a concern that these are intrusive questions and that there's a, uh, an attempt to suggest that we should, you know, take people's guns away. But I, I think that it's no different from asking, you know, is there a pool, a, a swimming pool, fen a fence around your swimming pool? Is there, um, do you have car seats for your children? Do you smoke around your children, like secondhand smoke? So those questions, if those questions are intrusive, I don't know what else we can do. We've got to ask proactive questions. Um, and then there's proactive actions. Uh, you know, obviously the first one, and this is a personal perspective, not something that I, I think that the American College of Physicians or all physicians would say, but I will definitely say this, and I'm not afraid to say this, remove all guns from a home which has kids. I would actually go even further, remove all guns from a home which has human beings in it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if you can't do that, then safe storage and safety measures like um, a loading indicator or a child safety lock on the gun, um, keeping them locked up, keeping them unloaded. These things have actually been proven to help reduce gun-related accidents. Has, has the NRA had any kind of a campaign, <clears throat> pardon me, against uh, this sort of thing, doctors having these kinds of conversations? I, well, I mean, I think they were once incensed in the 90s when um, there were some studies that indicated that uh, good control of guns in the home had reduced the number of uh, suicides and homicides. Mm -hmm. And so that led, led to the Dickey Amendment in 96, where um, the CDC was prohibited from, uh, and other agencies, uh, you know, the NIH were prohibited from doing research, let alone actually getting any funding. Now they can do research, but they just don't have any funding. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching the end of the year and a lot of people are wondering whom to donate. Um, and so there are a lot of gun research um, organizations uh, that I would suggest you donate to instead of maybe, you know, and my friends at Stray Rescue and, uh, you know, uh, St. Patrick's Center won't like me saying this because they want your money as well. But there's the Brady campaign, Every Town for Gun Safety, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. I think you should think about giving your money. If you're going to give money, especially big corporate donations, give your money to them this year. A number of, a number of, uh, a number of uh violent uh, gunshot deaths, well, of course, they're all violent, gunshot deaths and, and woundings are accidental. And we have a caller here who wants to get into that. So let's bring him in while we're on this particular subject. Dan is joining us from St. Louis. Dan, uh, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hey, yeah, I used to work for, for years for the Connecticut Department of Public Health in their education uh, division before moving here. So I'm used to kind of drilling down and finding some of the numbers. I'm glad uh, the doctor brought up the, the Dickey Amendment. Uh, mm -hmm. It's tricky to find good information about gun deaths, but I think everyone would you know, argue that school shootings are an issue, and I think the worst year of school shootings we had was, was about 40 gun deaths. Um, 
But uh, every year, 400, there's 400 accidental uh, gun shootings. That's not including hunting accidents, let alone the 20,000 uh, suicides. So I think, you know, bringing up the issue is imperative. Uh, what people do with the information, I, you know, my doctor talks about my weight, he talks about exercise, and what I choose to do with that information is up to me, but bringing it up is imperative. Dan, thanks for the call. I, I don't think you have any disagreement with anything. No, that, I, uh, I, I think it's completely right. Uh, you know, raising awareness is really our job as physicians. We mm. can't force you to stop smoking. And just like using that analogy with smoking, you know, nobody's going to take your cigarettes away. Mm -hmm. uh, we have regulations about smoking. It's not illegal to smoke, but it's been proven to reduce secondhand, uh, reducing secondhand smoke, reducing um, smoking itself helps reduce cancer, asthma, heart disease. Um, nobody's going to take your cigarettes away. In the same way, nobody's going to take your automobile away. Uh, we have regulations for those. You know, car safety and emissions testing, car design, airbags, uh, seat belts. And these have saved countless lives. And guess what? Nobody's going mm -hmm. to take your car away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, g when you can, when one third of gun sales require no background checks, for example, at uh, a gun show, you know, it's, it's asking for, it's uh, basically asking for trouble. I mean, what, what does it say about a country <clears throat> where it's now normal? And I, I, I can't think of any other word. It's normal. It's just another day to have a shooting in a school. Yeah. I'm going to open the lines now for listeners because I'm sure they want to get into the conversation. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or we'll take a tweet at STL on air. We would uh, love to hear from you. Um, I'd like to backtrack a little bit with you. You've been in this country for 21 years, you say. Um, what is it, as someone from sort of the outside looking in about this country that it makes it so violent? I think it's the culture that has preserved the Second Amendment. I think when the pioneers in the Old West um, needed, quote unquote, needed guns to defend themselves, I think that has just been very um, difficult to shake off. Uh, I don't know why people who don't hunt keep guns in the house. Is there seriously a fear of home invasion. I don't know. Before I moved to America back in 97, a lot of people in England did tell me, oh my God, you're going to get shot. They've all got guns, those crazy Americans. And, you know, I've not personally, uh, thankfully, come across any gun, you know, threat to myself uh, or to anyone I know closely. But, and so I know it's um, e exaggerated, but unfortunately those statistics are getting worse and worse every year. I, d I don't know how to explain this to my friends and relatives outside of America. Uh, they're, they're appalled about when they read the gun statistics, especially the physicians. Yeah. We have a lot of callers, uh, and, and I'd, I'd like to get to them or start to get to them before we take a break. We'll begin with Eric, uh, who's calling from St. Louis. Eric, uh, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, hey, I'm uh, interested in this uh, conversation, and I'd like to kind of carry through the analogy of the gun violence epidemic, which is what doctors are comparing it to, like, a, it, like it were a virus spreading, which I've read about here and there. If you carry the idea through, you have to ask the question, why some sectors of society are so much less, I'm sorry, so, have so much more gun violence? Why is their immunity, in a sense, so low to gun violence? And those sectors tend to be among black youth. 
Well, the answer to that puzzle was supplied in an op-ed piece in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch not long ago by the head of the local boys club. And he pointed out that um, people who, boys who are raised without fathers are 15 to 20 times more likely to commit violent crimes. So there you have it. In the black community today, uh, about 80% of households are headed by women. There's no uh, active male role model present. I, I, would, I would submit to you that that is the real root of the problem, the lowered immunity in, in black youth today. All right. Uh, thank you so much for the call. What do you make of that, doctor? So my, my initial reaction is um, I, I'm assuming it's all correct, and that is the real root. Well, that is the cause of the problem in that community. Mm. So what can we do about it? What mm. would uh, the caller suggest? What would anyone suggest that we do about it? Mm. Um, you know, how, how can you prevent uh, um, the father not being there? Mm. I mean, was he shot? Did he leave? I, I, I don't know. Um, but it, take, it just keeps taking me back to reducing the availability of guns. There's almost 400 million guns in circulation in America. That's 120 guns per 100 people. There's another issue with regard to the caller's uh, comments, and, and that is poverty. You put uh, guns together with people who are poor and desperate, and uh, things like what we are experiencing in St. Louis and all over the country are going to happen. Right. right. Yeah, and, and that takes me on to, I mean, we're kind of segueing onto the politics and the medicine side of this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've got to look at the big picture. We don't just, uh, as physicians, we shouldn't just be blinkered and, you know, what kind of antibiotic do you need for your ear infection when you don't even have any food in the house? What kind of... Uh, uh, inhaler am I giving you for your asthma when uh, you c keep on going back to a place which has, uh, you know, mildew and a, a dirty carpets. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, if, uh, if a child <clears throat> is getting shot, uh, are, we, are they just going to go back to a neighborhood or a, a situation where they've got a high chance of being shot again? We haven't addressed the problem. We're, mm -hmm. not, we're, not, we're just fixing, we're just providing a cure, a treatment, and if the patient survives, they're going to be back. Well, there is that very, very active lobby against doing anything to, uh, to control firearms in this country, needless to say. We've got to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Sonny Sager of Downtown Urgent Care. We're talking about guns and doctors and gun violence. Back to uh, continue the conversation and take your calls. We have a number of them here, and we'll do that momentarily. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back to our conversation about doctors and gun violence. We have a number of calls. Let's get right to them, get as many as we can in, and uh, talk about other things as time will allow. Let's bring in Mark, uh, calling from uh, not sure where, but Mark, you're on the air. Go ahead. Mark? Oh, Mark has just left. All right, we'll bring in Jason then. He's calling from St. Louis. Ja Jason, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. So, um... I am a trauma surgeon over at Mercy St. Louis, and in February, after the Florida shooting, I wrote an article in Huffington Post, essentially um, giving my perspective of what it means to be a trauma surgeon and taking care of uh, gunshot victims, specifically uh, assault weapons. And 
Fortunately, in St. Louis, we're blessed with having three level one trauma centers, but not all locations within the United States are equipped with level one or, or even level two trauma centers. And the type of devastation that assault rifles can cause creates a mass casualty or um, situation. And a lot of times hospitals aren't equipped to handle that level um, of injury. And compared to mass casualty situations with, let's say, a fire or, um, you know, an explosion in a building, those are unexpected uh, and uh, obviously accidents that happen. But um, it just raises the question of if we as hospitals are not completely equipped to deal with mass casualty type of situations in regards specifically to assault rifles, maybe that should be an impetus for conversation for us to say, if we are um, as hospitals, as trauma surgeons, as surgeons or other type of healthcare providers, if we can't handle that type of volume in that short short of a time period, maybe that should be um, a reason to really delve deep into the questions in regards specifically to assault rifles and not necessarily handguns. All right, Jason, thank you for the call. I, I, again, I'm assuming you're going to pretty much agree with me, Jason. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I should also point out that doctors and, and nurses are humans too. Um, seeing, experiencing um, these, this amount of gun violence does take its toll and hospitals will, you know, have uh, team debriefings, but um, we should all spare a thought for the physicians and nurses who are extremely upset after managing a gun violent case, gun violence case. Um, at the time, they're going to be professional. They're going to be on automatic. They're going to internalize everything. They won't mm. show their emotions. They've got a job to do. Somebody's dying. Um, they do cry later. Um, I'm not saying that they suffer more intensely than the family of the victims, but they definitely suffer more frequently. And, uh, you know, it's a dirty job. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, people like Jason do it. And we should be thankful for all the physicians and nurses, not just in the ER, but around the entire hospital, who choose to help those who nobody else seems to want to help. Yeah, it reaches the level of PTSD, I think, in some cases with uh, constant exposure. Absolutely. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, let's uh, go back to the phones. We'll bring in Lisi calling from St. Louis. Uh, Lisi, I hope I have it pronounced correctly. Go ahead. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm a volunteer with Women's Voices Race for Social Justice, and we have a program called Lock It for Love. It's a gun safety education uh, program where we go out in the community and talk to parents and grandparents and other adults about um, safety, particularly um, storage of firearms safely in the homes. Um, the doctor there was talking about the accidental deaths, and we have found parents to be extremely receptive, and um, we provide gun locks and show um, demonstrate how to use them appropriately. And we've also found the physicians, particularly at Barnes Jewish Hospital and St. Louis Children's Hospital, we provide gun locks to the emergency department there. And we know that the doctors there are talking to their patients about um, gun safety and prevention measures. Thank you for the call. There again, that's exactly the kind of thing that uh, you and yours are... Another entity that uh, could be uh, donated uh, to as well. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right, exactly what she said. Already. Uh, we apparently have Mark back. We tried to bring him in a couple of minutes ago, but he disappeared, but now he's back. Mark, you're on the air. Yes, thank you, Colin, from Chesterfield. One, one of the things that certainly any death uh, that occurs as a result of the gun, whether violence or otherwise, is a tragedy and has ripple effects across 
the family and the community. But one of the things that gets lost in this conversation is the purpose behind the Second Amendment. Uh, the good doctor came from England, and as he might recall from their history, a couple 250 years ago, we fought our, our, for our freedom from England in independence. And there's a number of nations around the world today that are in civil wars against repressive, tyrannical government. And the purpose of the Second Amendment is not to necessarily guard yourself against an intruder into your own home, although that would be fine. I'm a veteran, uh, a hunter, and a proud Second Amendment supporter. But it's really the purpose of the Second Amendment is to for the citizenry to arm itself against a tyrannical government, maybe indeed its own government. <clears throat> so I'll take your comments off the air. That gets lost in the conversation, and that's the purpose the Second Amendment is in the U.S. Constitution. Th- thank, thank you, Mark. Any response to that? It's a- well, firstly, Mark, thank you very much for your service. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I think it's, um, it's rather an existential discussion. I, I know many people around the country have had um, frustrating conversations, both um, pro-Second Amendment and uh, gun control people, and I don't think I want to add any fuel to that fire. Um, but I will say that, you know, we, um, I don't think, I don't think um, individuals who are going to keep guns in their homes are ever really going to be a match for the U.S. military mm-hmm. if it came to a head-to-head battle. I, I saw not uh, too awfully long ago a piece in indicating that there are more guns and you say more than 400 million guns in this country. There are more guns in this country than there are in the American and Soviet military combined. Right, right. You know, this is getting a little bit repetitive, I think. I think the point has been well made. I would like to just bring up a couple of other things, if we might, uh, dealing with medicine. We talk about doctors having these conversations with patients. I wonder if doctors couldn't do more, for instance, with regard to the opioid epidemic that's taking place. You know, uh, a lot of that uh, blame for that is placed on doctors because they're overprescribing uh, opioids. W- what do you think? I agree. Doctors are probably uh, a major cause of the opioid epidemic, and um, they're, they're the pharmaceutical companies actually uh, promote these medications are also responsible. Um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done for uh, a lot of physicians that, you know, you do you realize how addictive this medicine is and maybe you shouldn't be going with something so strong. Um, I do know that people for a sprained ankle get prescribed Percocet, which is in my mind ridiculous um, to do that. And uh, when really some ibuprofen and if you really want to get a mild narcotic, maybe some Tylenol with codeine <coughs> would be enough. Mm. But uh, I think uh, it's Sometimes there's a lot of patient expectation and a lot of demand put on the doctor, but that doesn't mean that we should not do the right thing. What kind of a hold would you say that the pharmaceutical industry has on, on doctors? We, we hear a lot about the, uh, the reps coming in and giving golf clubs and vacations and dinners and all the rest of it. Um, is that overstated? I've never been given anything like that. I, I don't think that is allowed anymore for quite a number of years. And um, I mean, if it was me, I would take their stuff and still not prescribe it if I didn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think many physicians, uh, just like all of us, when we watch a TV commercial, we all feel like it's not going to really affect us. Uh, and most physicians, when they get a drug lunch or a drug dinner or something like that, they might think that that particular medicine is not as great as they want you to think it is, and I won't really prescribe it. But unfortunately, that might be the first one that comes to your mind when you have that problem in mind. 
Are doctors, do you think, doing as much as they could, uh, particularly in a place like Missouri, with regard to Medicaid and Medicaid expansion? No. Um, I, I think going back to, I mean, as a segue from the gun talk, uh, to fix any problem, we must first identify the cause. So whenever I, whenever I getting, uh, just to, before I talk more about Medicaid, whenever I see a patient, I do five things. One, symptom control, pain, vomiting, breathing, whatever. Two, identify the diagnosis. Three, identify the cause. Um, for provide the definitive treatment. You know, if it's a heart attack, take them to the cath lab. They need a stent. If it's a gunshot wound, then, you know, control the bleeding, remove the bullet, repair the damage. And then number five, prevent it from happening again. And that's the number five that seems to be a problem. So getting back to Medicaid and politics and medicine, to fix any problem, we must first identify the cause. Um, Medicaid is the insurer of of society's most underprivileged and most vulnerable people. And unfortunately, there are physicians who reject Medicaid in our society. And, to, and I feel very strongly that to reject it is to reject our moral responsibility as physicians and to worsen the disparities in healthcare that we've been charged with eliminating. Um, you know, maybe uh, some people feel that um, they're against all of us looking after all of us, you know, like the universal healthcare argument. Um, but... Um, and that poor people are unhealthy because of the choices that they made. Is this true with, for kids with cancer? Was that their fault? Is that really true? Maybe the bad choice wasn't theirs to make. Maybe they had no other choice. Maybe the only food they could afford was that kind of food, which wasn't great. Maybe the only water they could drink. I mean, everyone thinks of Michigan when you say that now. Um, the only place they were allowed to sleep. Maybe it wasn't a choice. Maybe mm. they were just on the, the downside of privilege, and so they've got to suffer because... A lot of wealthier people in this separate but equal society um, have determined that, oh, it's their own fault and uh, too bad. You know, uh, I don't know if you know, the, are familiar with the separate but equal um, concept the Supreme yeah. Court did sure. after Plessy v. Ferguson in sure, 1896 about the, uh, so it was the upholding the constitutionality of um, racial segregation laws for public facilities like bathrooms, mm-hmm. as long as such segregated facilities were equal in quality. When this is applied to healthcare, which I believe it is, um, it means that healthcare is delivered in a discriminatory manner, based not on medical need, but on ability to pay. So instead of having, um, so basically you'll have the healthiest and the wealthiest on one side, and the sickest and the poorest on the other side. In 1896, it was the whites on one side and the blacks on the mm-hmm. other side. And so, you know, if you if a prejudice is based on your place in the economic caste system that we've created, then we're basically fortifying it and yeah. making it even worse. I mean, imagine if we did that with public schools that, um, and I, I'm not including private schools here, you know, all the rich kids can go to this public school and all the poor kids can go to that private public school. Or if we said um, all the uh, wealthier houses can have this fire truck and all the poorer houses should have this fire truck. And I mean, there would be an uproar, and yet we're doing that in medicine. We're also doing it in public education, by the way, as a matter of fact. You've opened a Pandora's box here, Doctor, and I'm afraid our time is up. But we'll have another discussion at another time about some of these things that uh, I know you've wanted to talk about. But the gun issue is one that uh, is an important one now, particularly with all the recent incidents that we've had. So, Dr. Sonny Sager of Downtown Urgent Care, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.